Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, November 12th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Disney Plus's The Mandalorian. We have seen the first episode entitled Chapter One, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about that. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And special guest, Brian Young, who is from Star Wars Insider, StarWars.com, and the Full of Sith podcast. He reviewed this episode for us on SlashFilm.com. Uh, thanks for joining us, Brian. It is indeed my pleasure. I feel like you are uh, the, the best expert in Star Wars mythology that I know. So I'm, I'm glad to have you here with us. Um and uh, it is my birthday, so uh, I'm glad Bob Iger decided to release Disney Plus and The Mandalorian on my birthday. Uh, thanks, Happy Bob. Happy birthday! Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> there's that. Um, okay, let's get into it. Let's talk about our brief reactions to this. I'll start things off. And I think I, I you know, Brian and I both saw, like, a package of footage a few weeks back, and I had a reaction back then. So my reaction's kind of similar. Uh, this is pretty incredible. It's it's it feels more like a spaghetti western, a space spaghetti western than I guess Star Wars. Even though Star Wars could be described as that, um, I I even think I saw someone online like say it felt more tonally like Firefly than Star Wars, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, Filoni can be felt all over this from the humor to the action to the, you know, how he chooses to drop in Star Wars mythology. And, um, I love, uh, the little tease at the end and I'm very intrigued to where this series is going to take us. Uh, Brad, what what was your thoughts? Uh, I thought this was fantastic. It's pretty much exactly what I wanted uh, from a show like this. I think that it, it really digs into the seedier side of the Star Wars universe, especially uh, in a time after things are very uncertain, after the fall of the Empire. Uh, I, I like that it has a different genre feel than we're used to in Star Wars, as opposed to just feeling like general Star Wars in spirit. Uh, I think this is where the future of Star Wars lies. You know, this this has the... this um the visual look and the aesthetic of the original star Wars trilogy, but it has a genre that is 
distinctly Western within the galaxy of, you know, Star Wars characters. And I like seeing, you know, John Favreau and the various directors that are doing these episodes play in the Star Wars universe, but do something that doesn't exactly feel like Star Wars, but has elements that we've all come to love and recognize from the universe. Yeah. By the way, that soundtrack, it's like so much different than any other Star Wars soundtrack. I'm loving it. Uh, Brian, what did you think of the first episode? So I was really nervous. I think I expressed this to you when we watched some of this footage, which was actually a lot of this episode that we saw, um, that I was really concerned that we were going to get too gritty and too dark and too um, over the top with a what I would call like the, the sensibility of a 13-year-old's idea of how cool Star Wars is. But I was really gratified as we watched the episode to see that it didn't take itself too seriously. That was all matched equally with with a um, with a knowledge of the lore and a respect for it, but also with humor that was there were there were laugh out loud funny moments. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a more suicidal droid. <laughs> and and that was such good stuff. And the ending hook had me right. I was already picking up tones of of lone wolf and cub and this just it made me twice as interested in seeing the next episode where where they left us off here yeah for sure i i I feel like i I am noticing the people there are some people that don't love they like this but they don't love this and the criticisms i'm generally seeing around is that the main character is like because he's underneath a mask that it's hard to relate with him it's a, you know, we're not seeing a person's face. We're not getting, you know, it's, it's, he's a, a man of mystery. Um, we, we do get a little bit of his origin. We'll talk about that later. But uh, I feel like that is the one criticism that I'm seeing a lot on Twitter from people. Actually, even uh, Kitra, I watched it with my girlfriend Kitra, and she had some problems relating with this character. Why should I care about this character? Um, so there's that. It should be acknowledged. Okay, let's uh let's dive in because uh, there's a lot of questions around this episode. Um, let's start with uh okay, so the beginning of this episode involves Mandalorian tracking a bounty. He goes to some icy planet and he gets this guy in a bar. There's this badass fight where uh, one of the guy gets ripped in two by the the door, and there's that totally badass line: "I can bring him, bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold." Uh, the so there's this creature that hails the taxis with this musical instrument. What what is that, Brian? That's that's a kubaz. We first saw those in A New Hope. Uh, Garandan was the imperial spy that alerted the the Empire to the Millennium Falcon's docking bay in Mos Eisley, and uh, that was the that was the first time we saw one of those creatures in Star Wars. And uh, I don't really th- I think we might have seen some in in, in the background, but nothing uh, major in some of the cartoons. But uh, this is the first time they've come back into the world of Star Wars. Is it like this episode? It has some weird comedy to it. I feel like, and uh, these now that they are like basically the guy that handle like handles the taxi outside of the Bellagio is like the role <laughs> well, of the, right. It's it's interesting that that you've got like yeah like you've got that, but also. The fact that the guy he's hauling in is Horatio Sands, and the guy who's who's the taxi driver is Brian Posehn. Yeah, I and, loved seeing like little bit parts played by comedians like that. It was so fun to to me. Yeah, no, it really was. But then you've got the added element where it's like this is silly, 
but then as the story unfolds, you realize what the Mandalorian's problem with droids is that he was a survivor of the Clone Wars and that his parents were sort of taken away by the, the Separatist army. If you look in those shots of his parents, you can see super battle droids there sort of terrorizing them and taking him, uh, like taking them from him in that way. And uh, so, so when he says no droids, it plays like a funny moment, but then it gets that added dramatic relevance when you learn later uh, more about him. So I, I really think that that's just great filmmaking, having that stuff work on multiple levels, even when it seems like it's just a joke on the surface. I actually was going to ask you about the droid. You know, why did he not trust droids? Because the first car that's called, or speeder that's called, is piloted by a droid and he didn't want to get into it. I did not pick up on that uh, later on. So I'm curious to hear what else you picked up on in that scene. But we'll we'll get to that. I think that there's more that will be revealed with that flashback too because there was... Um, there were better shots of what that flashback in the trailers that where it was clear that there were super battle droids and it moved much too fast, I think, in this episode to really uh, pick up on that unless you were looking for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was definitely a frame by frame kind of situation to pick them up. Um, but I really loved like just just it's really great screenwriting, I think, on Favreau's part and great directing on Filoni's part that you start it with a scene of him saying he doesn't like droids and doesn't want to deal with them. You show the flashback that if you're paying careful attention to, you see that he's a survivor of an attack by the separatist droid army. And then you have him forced to deal with IG 11. And by the time you hit that moment where IG 11's going to uh, make his final move, it's almost like a turn again. That's both surprising and inevitable about what he did with the droid. So that, thread of his attitude about droids fits in with every like throughout the entire piece and it's it's barely noticeable that first run through and it's just it's really clever writing let's talk about this first bounty that he's bringing in the uh blue guy i don't know his name offhand Um, i don't think he has a name he's species he referred to as a mithril mithril or a mithril it it seemed like this was establishing like a setup that he was going to be a big like a bigger character in the series, but quickly we find out that he gets, you know, frozen in carbonite and is dumped off for, you know, the bounty. And I felt like there was going to be more to this relationship. Brad, am I alone here? Um, I mean, yeah, I was wondering what kind of role he was going to play and why he was picking this person up. But yeah, as it goes on, really, it just seems just to set up the, basically the, the everyday life of yeah. someone like the Mandalorian and how he goes, about getting his targets and that kind of thing. Yeah, and we uh, we get to see the vac tube. I think it's called. Is that right? <laughs> well, so, yeah, that's what he called it there. But uh, it's been referred to as a refresher elsewhere in Star Wars. Yeah, so uh, we we first saw that in Rebels or Clone Wars, something like that. It was Rebels, Wedge Antilles, uh, in a, an episode where Chopper goes, uh, where Chopper is hacked by Josh Gad, and. Uh, <laughs> And not a character uh, played by Josh Gad, but Josh Gad. No, just kidding. Yeah, no, Josh Gad. Well, his character's name is the controller. Yeah. Uh, so he doesn't really have a name. But Josh Gad uh, takes control of Chopper and Wedge needs to use the restroom. And um, the droid, the Marvin, Marvin, the sad robot sort of droid comes in and interrupts Wedge at the refresher. That was way more detail about a bathroom in Star Wars than you needed. So, 
Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> okay, so he goes to meet uh, Carl Weathers' character, Grief. Grief Karga. Yeah, and actually in this in this uh, cantina or restaurant, whatever it is, uh, we see someone that looks like it could be Constable Zuvio in the corner. Is that Constable Zuvio? I would doubt it's Constable Zuvio, but it did look like a Qzo, um, which is um, the species, and they had a similar helmet. Interesting thing about that species, um, Qzos were named after the Master Swordsman character in Seven Samurai. Oh, I did not know that. That's what you got me here for. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they uh, Carl Weathers offers him imperial credits. Imperial credits are not worth the, what they used to be. He gets calamari money instead, and Weathers basically offers him this job that is off books that uh, you know doesn't have a puck and it's high paying bounty. Uh, we see the Mandalorian go through the marketplace. We see some Jawas and some Star Wars stuff. And Mandalorian uh, knocks on this door, and there's this iDroid thing that comes out that... Uh, that's like the same thing that was in Jabba's Palace, I think, right? Yeah, he has yeah. the same dialogue, and I wouldn't even be surprised if it was the same recordings either. Yeah, so he goes in there, and uh, uh, instantly we see that there's some stormtroopers. So I'm what they're guarding the gonk droid though. There's a gonk droid. Oh, gonk droid. Yes, I love the gonk droid. Although the gonk droid does look like it's been upgraded a bit because it seemed like it had like a transparent like shell on its head instead of the usual just box droid style. Good call. Yeah, I did notice that. Uh, but th- the next thing we see is a bunch of stormtroopers. Uh, Garden Warner Herzog's character. Uh, my question to you, Brad: Are these storm are these stormtroopers that have been you know the remnants of the empire collapsing or are these like guards that have just salvaged you know stormtrooper gear that's a good question um i would be willing to bet that they are probably real stormtroopers who in the fall of the empire are just trying to find whatever jobs they can doing you know protection for people becoming bodyguards or anything um but it could stand to reason that there are also just people who have salvaged stormtrooper armor. I hadn't thought of that. I just initially thought that they were just stormtroopers misplaced doing anything they can to survive. I, I mean, the armor is pretty, like, worn and beat up. Uh, does Could this mean that Werner Herzog has ties to the Empire? I, I'd be willing to bet that more so he's just hired these people as hired guns for as his bodyguards. He seems like the kind of person who maybe does that, but he does have that medallion that has the, the Galactic Empire, uh, you know, the Imperial symbol on it. So, you know, it's... And he does appear to be at least working with somebody who may have ties to the Empire. Yeah, like, at that second, a guy named Dr. Pershing comes out, and there's a little a bit of a scuffle. Uh, what do you make of this, Brian? Um, Dr. Pershing has a uniform that that's vaguely similar in style to Imperial science officers that we saw in Rogue One and uh, with with Mad, Mads Mikkelsen's character. And I, I do think these are these are all people who if they're not I mean, there is no empire, but they are people who were there with the empire. I mean, Herzog's mysterious, nameless character hands him a brick of Beskar steel stamped with an imperial logo in it that was from the what they refer to as the great purge um, and by the, the way storm- that seems like so remnant of like the nazis stamping their yeah. logos in, in gold bars it's, it, it's yeah. such a cool touch and it, it brings a lot of that in particular brings a lot of really high emotion if you remember all the stuff with the 
Mandalorians in Rebels and how they were treated and subjugated and almost, uh, you know, killed in a genocide by the Empire. Um, and, uh, you know, the Mandalorians have had it really rough over the last 25 years in galactic history. Let's talk about Beskar Steel for a second. Like, why is Beskar Steel so important? Um, well, it can deflect blaster bolts and... Um, Beskar steel as armor, according to Sabine Wren in Rebels, uh, every bit of it was designed to combat Jedi, right? Like every bit of a Mandalorian's armor was something that they came up with culturally when they were doing their expansive conquests of the galaxy to combat the Jedi specifically. And they were the only people who were force who weren't force users that would stand toe to toe with the Jedi so that it's something that both has a cultural significance because they pass that armor down from generation to generation. Um, Sabine's Beskar steel armor, she was able to melt it down and reshape it, but she talks about how it's 500 years old and has the, the scars and ghosts of battle from it, uh, from all of those people who owned it before her in it. And uh, so it's it's culturally significant and it's, significant in the sense of the galaxy where it can stop a blaster bolt with no problem and a lightsaber with, uh, you know, for, for at least a, a minute, you know? <laughs> at least a minute. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just here to point out the badass lines. The stormtroopers say that th- we have you four to one and Mandalorian says, I like those odds. Just such yeah. a cool, uh, star Wars line. Uh, Brad, what did you think of Werner Herzog in, in this show? God, I love Werner Herzog in this show so much. Every single line he says sounds so intimidating <laughs> and you're just hanging on every single word. He's, his voice is just incredible. And this this is like the perfect part for him to play. I, I love it so much. Yeah. And I'm sure Do- Dr. Pershing is going to come back into play after we find out what the bounty actually is at the end of this episode. But l- l- let's get to that. Uh, so we're in the uh, streets again. We see uh, Quacky Monkey Lizard being roasted while another's watching on. Uh, Mandalorian uh, enters an underground lair for Mandalorians. What is this place? What do we think? I, you know, I think this is some sort of outpost of of exiled Mandalorians. We heard about something like the Great Purge. Um, unfortunately, where the canon has left us, as far as the Mandalorians have been concerned, is the Empire had taken over and basically, sort of, um, in a in a World War One, World War Two sort of situation, they were taken over by a guy named Gar Saxon who was sort of like their equivalent of, of Pétain when he took over and was operating the French government, uh, the Vichy government, for the Nazis. And so he was basically an imperial stooge, this Gar Saxon character, and he didn't get dealt with until just before the events of Rogue One on the show Rebels. And then at that point, they restored power, at least uh, culturally, to Katie Sackhoff's character, Bo-Katan, but that was the last thing we saw is that they were still struggling from overcoming the Empire, and we haven't seen anything about them in the canon so far, um, or since then. So this could be some exiled group that still hasn't um, been able to come back because of the war, or maybe something worse happened to Mandalore. Um, We just don't know. I like that there's other Mandalorians in the show. For some reason, a show called The Mandalorian, I thought he was going to be the only one that we'd see for a while. So uh, it, it, it's very yeah, cool. Same. Uh, yeah, same. Th- there's a woman Mandalorian who has like a helmet made out of, it looks like a golden 
uh, metal and has horns, and she's using the steel to create a uh, shoulder pad for the Mandalorian. Yeah. Uh, who is this? Do we know anything about her? The only thing we know about her is that her name. Uh, she's played by an actress named Emily Swallow. The only guess I can make, aside from the fact that she's sort of a Mandalorian blacksmith, is that um, the only other character we've seen with horns on their helmet was Gar Saxon, and that was when he was working for Maul, when Maul was nominally in charge of Mandalore. So um, in the canon, that's that's really the only other time we've seen horns like that on a Mando helmet, and I don't know if that's going to tie back to Maul or tie back to Gar Saxon's group of... Uh, Mandos, and that was something that was interesting. I w- I haven't heard the term signet that she uses. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you that because she asked him, "Has your signet been revealed? Like, what what do but, we think that means?" I think that means something like that would lead him to know who his house or his clan is, and uh, and because he he's what they call a foundling, an orphan, and I think that. Um, the the revelation of that is probably going to factor in the show significantly and maybe tie back to some of these uh, other issues of the Mandos, but uh, but yeah, I think that that's what that signet is meant to imply. We also hear that the uh, the like the leftover Beskar steel will go to the Foundlings. Uh, so I'm wondering, like Brad, what do you make of this? Like are like are all the Mandalorian like? orphans like what what is going like what is this uh it doesn't sound like they all are because uh mando kind of goes out of his way you know to say that to, to mention the fact that he was a foundling and he let you know uh yeah. likes helping any, in any way they can but it does seem like that um maybe the mandalorians have become kind of a place where orphans can can possibly go to you know, make it easier to survive or, you know, or something like that. Like maybe they almost like uh, an orphanage that teaches them how to take care of themselves. Do you think over this series we're going to see the Mandalorian slowly build up his armor into all Beskar steel? I I thought that's what this implied. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I feel like, I mean, depending on how this job goes too, that could turn out to be a lot easier since he's supposed to get a whole container shipment of it, right? I, I have a feeling, Brad, he's not going to get that container of Beskar steel, but we'll see. Yeah, my guess is, <laughs> my guess is that's going to go s- south. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so he flies to this mountainous desert planet. Uh, some alien creatures attack. They're called Blurgs. I, have we seen them before, Brian? We have. So Blurgs were mounts used by Chamsundula and the Free Ryloth movement on Ryloth. I feel like a giant nerd right now. Um, <laughs> Because I'm like, what, what actually, part of Star Wars canon is that from? Um, that's from Rebels. Okay. Um, so we've seen them in Rebels. I don't think this planet is Ryloth, however, but I really, really, really loved the look of how it looked like it was uh, a, a a cracked sort of salt bed zoomed up a thousand times a thousand that they were running across. It was so cool looking. I really love this battle between him and the creatures. Like the creatures look this this show looks so big budget. It looks so like those creatures look better than anything I've seen. I think on te- like a television show. Yeah, uh, they, I I don't know if if they did part of it practical and then just used CG to kind of like uh, touch it up a little bit. But they there were shots when they looked like they were real practical creatures that maybe there was somebody like inside something controlling them. I want to see a behind the scenes of this. 
Uh, but okay, uh, moving on. Uh, in Ugnot, played by <laughs> Nick Nolte. Yeah. Right? Uh, basically comes to the save. He tranks them, and uh, it's it's funny seeing Nolte after all that makeup. Uh, and he he basically says he's gonna help him out because he has never met a. A Mandalorian before, um, and he trains him how to ride. He he, he needs to ride an Ugnot to get to where he needs to go. I mean, well, no, not no, an Ugnot, a Blurg. No, 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 Blurg. no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, he needs to ride a Blurg to get where he needs to go. So he's tra- riding an Ugnot is a totally different. Yeah, show. that would be funny. That would be hilarious. Uh, and so he teaches him the tr- tr- to ride the Blurg, and it's kind of. Like, there's this musical score that almost feels like a Rocky movie, but set in the Star Wars universe. I'm, I'm really digging it. And uh, there's a a quick mention here when the Mandalorian does it, like, is like, fuck this, I'm not going to ride a Blurg, uh, where he's like, your ancestors rolled, rode the great Mythosaur. I think you could ride a Blurg. So uh, that is the kind of awesome drop of... Star Wars canon that I love from Dave Filoni. Uh, what is a mythosaur? So you know the um, the skull emblem that everyone associates with Boba Fett that was in the original sort of canon or the expanded universe canon known as a mythosaur, and that was a mythosaur skull. Um, during the Legends reboot, that was sort of erased, and no one quite knew what, what they were called, and no one sort of acknowledged that they might be mythosaurs, but they were beasts on Mandalore that the Mandalorians had tamed and uh, getting them back in canon, I think made a lot of people will, will make a lot of people happy Yeah, um, because yeah, we haven't had a name for it. We had, we weren't sure what to call it because there hadn't been any canon reference. <laughs> and uh, this is just a good thing. Okay. So we're explaining there's, there'll be no peace on this planet until these people that have occupied the space are gone. Uh, if, so basically, he, he he's helping him. He's helping the Mandalorian get there because he wants to get rid of these people. And when the Mandalorian shows up, he also finds that IG-11 also shows up at the same time. This is the uh, character. So hold on, hold on. Before, before we get to that real quick, though, yeah. I did want to say the the Ugnod character was something that almost took me out of it a little bit. because, And I'm on the fence about it still Why? because – because I don't think that the mouth movement was very good on it. And granted, I think that that's probably intentional as a throwback to how the Ugnaughts looked in The Empire Strikes Back. It just felt kind of hokey to me sometimes when the character would talk and the mouth didn't quite work well with what the line's being said. And I also don't think that's Nick Nolte in that makeup. I think he's just doing the voice. Yeah, he's just doing the voice. That's not him. There was a different performer. Oh, in wow. There. I didn't know that. Um. He's much but, shorter than Nick Nolte. Yeah, that, uh, he's much he's much shorter than everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes uh, but, sense. But yeah, I, I just thought but, they used CG or something to it, do that. No, I mean the, the I, I'm pretty sure that was practical yeah. makeup at least because it it, it, it was it kind of clunky in that way. And so I, I don't know. I'm on the fence about it because I kind of like the idea of them keeping it a little bit um, looking a little bit bad. I guess you could say w- w- because it's supposed to have that same feel of the original trilogy. But it did feel odd at times with some of the lines that he was saying. No, I agree. Uh, okay, IG-11 shows up at this base. He's also taking on this bounty. And IG-11 is another bounty hunter. He's a droid bounty hunter voiced by Taiko Atiti, who directs a couple episodes of this upcoming season. And 
I will say this. We knew that he was going to be in this. We've seen footage, and we knew that Taika Waititi was going to voice him. And it was – I was expecting it to be more Taika. Like, as I've seen in his previous movies, he, he typically uh, features into his movies. And this was a little bit less Taika than I was expecting. Brad, am, am I wrong? Uh, no, I kind of felt the same way, too. I was expecting it to have a little bit more – um, personality and that kind of liveliness that Taika's characters usually have, but I think it's good that they probably went against those expectations because that almost makes IG-11 funnier than maybe he otherwise would have been. You know, I think if he was just a wisecracking bounty hunter droid, then it would have been like, oh, oh yeah, that's that's funny, and that's what we, what we want to expect. But in this case, he's he acts more like a robotic droid in the way he talks and the way he approaches the mission and speaks with the, more of the like old school sci-fi things, uh, the way robots used to talk about saying affirmative and agreeing things in, in a very practical protocol kind of way. Um, and especially once he starts choosing whether or not he's going to self-destruct like five <laughs> or six times throughout this battle. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah, no, I thought that was funny. Uh, they agree to team up and split the bounty. You know, IG keeps on deciding if he's going to self-destruct. Uh, they're battling against these, these people which i didn't know who they were but i had my subtitles on and the subtitles told us that they are nictus and i yeah, so, who, who are they yeah nicto they are um in the um they were uh, they're they're sort of a race that's been enslaved a lot we've seen jedi that were nicto uh one notable one was again a tie to ryloth and i'm not sure how how um hmm. uh how much that actually connects, but uh, the Jedi Master, I'm a gonna die, uh, or I'm I'm gonna I'm a gonna gun D or something like that. But it was basically I'm gonna die. Uh, he served at the Battle of Ryloth in the Clone Wars, and then the Nikto were enslaved in Jabba's palace, and in the novel Bloodline, uh, one of them, uh, Rin Riven D, which was a a a an underworld sort of mob boss he was the one who uh, let Princess Leia know that, that she was, or General, or Senator Organa at that point, that she was revered among the Nikto people as the Hut Slayer, because recordings of her uh, choking Jabba had uh, spread amongst their people. Hmm. Okay, so eventually Mando gets the Gatling gun, which is this fun sequence of him taking out the Nictu, uh, and they shoot their way through the door. Uh, they sense a life form. It's in the small pod. They open the pod, and it is a baby, even though they were told they were after someone that was 50 years old. IG-11 uh, speculates that um, species age differently. Perhaps it could live many centuries. As we know, this is... Uh, baby of like the same species that Yoda is. We don't actually know the name of that species, but we do know Yoda died. He was over 900 years old. So, you know, they live a very long time. And uh, it's interesting here because this is one of the first rumors I had ever heard about the Mandalorian like a year ago. I heard this was a story about a bounty hunter who goes in search for a bounty and finds out that it's a child. And decides not to return the bounty but i did not know it was a yoda creature uh it should also be noted that um making star wars reported a, 
I think a couple weeks back that George Lucas contributed to the Mandalorian by providing some details on Yoda species, including a name. And George Lucas has always been kind of very cagey on giving any details on Yoda species. Uh, even though like some people think there, uh, there's a species in the prequels called the Linux, I think. And some people had thought that that was Yoda species. That is incorrect. Um, so what do we know here? What do we know about Yoda species? Um, the only thing we know about Yoda species, uh, is that until this point, there were two of them. Uh, there was Yoda and Yaddle also served on the Jedi council. And, uh, that actually is what is the most interesting thing about this. If this is still a babe in arms and a bassinet, then, and it's, 50 years old that could date this back to the point where this could be a force sensitive child who had been brought up in a Jedi nursery like we'd seen in the second uh, first and second season no I think the second season of the Clone Wars and Palpatine was after the Jedi younglings um, that this could be some holdover from that because Palpatine was interested in stealing those babies if this is some imperial plot to raise maybe another inquisitor or something like that um, that would be really interesting. And uh, there's a lot of storytelling potential there, just given the age of the of the infant. Yeah, I'm wondering if the species is, is inherently very highly Force-sensitive, if they have a high metachlorine count. Uh, Brad, yeah. what, what are your thoughts? Uh, th- th- this is the most intriguing, uh, I think, part to me, because I was... Like very surprised by when they showed this thing because not only does it look cute, but it's just like, oh my gosh, like what is this uh you know, what is this gonna mean? Like why do they want this thing? You know, what 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 do they hope to do with it? You know, is it the Empire that wants it? Um Yeah, there there's so many possibilities here as to where where this could, could go and I'm I'm very excited to see like the the direction the show heads with that kind of ending. Yeah, it's very intriguing. Uh, we did mention on this podcast before that they refused to show this whole episode to critics because they said there was a big spoiler that they didn't want out there. Uh, we're guessing this is the spoiler, but this doesn't really... I, I don't think this ties in a major way yet to the larger Star Wars uh, canon. Uh, some people are speculating, could this young... You know, could, could this person be like Yoda's son or daughter? Or even a clone. <laughs> I have not seen that speculation. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's. I think it's interesting simply because, yeah, it, it's weird because I don't know why they made us hide it or why they held back screeners because it's a detail that like we wouldn't have spoiled anyway because it's a cool reveal and it's the very end of the episode, you know. So the fact that they're holding it back, I don't. I don't know. Obviously, it has something big to do with the rest of the series. But since we don't know what's happening, there's really nothing that would would have been ruined by getting the screeners out there early. I, I I mean, I agree, but I think that there's some other elements too that, that they wanted to obscure. I think the having other Mandalorians on the show is something they wanted to keep, something they did keep secret in all of the marketing. Um, and that could have been as much one of the story points they were trying to yeah. avoid because it seems like they were billing the Mandalorian as this, lone wolf who works for himself and is capable of anything but then when you see the episode it seems pretty clear he's handing all of his money back to the people of his culture which is a very different character than i think they were trying to sell in the marketing so where do we think this is going to go from here so he finds this young 
child. Uh, he's obviously not going to bring him back and get that Beskar steel. I feel like he feels, uh, you know, he's not a robot underneath that armor. He's a, uh, you know, he has a heart. Uh, so and and as an orphan, yeah. as a fellow orphan, I think he's got a lot of uh, feelings tied up in that. So where where do you, where do you guys think this is going to take us? Lone Wolf and Cub, man. <laughs> Seriously. I, I mean, all all the great Star Wars movies and stories have been inspired by, you know, stuff like that. So that I mean, you've you've made almost a career about, about writing about that kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff. So that makes complete sense. Well, and it makes sense too. Um so at the at that press event, I got to do a roundtable with Favreau and Filoni, and the first thing I asked about was those cinematic connections. And I said, you know, I'm picking up a lot of um, Kurosawa, Yojimbo, uh, Leone with a fistful of dollars, and even some Lone Wolf and Cub. And how was it matching the technology to those things? And Filoni and Favreau just sort of shared a look, and then he he proceeded to steamroll over the specifics of the inspiration <laughs> and gave me a really general answer. Um, of course. Which now, in retrospect, was like, oh my, I'd actually hit upon something they were not prepared in any way to talk about. Oh yeah, I I think for sure. Uh, Brad, where do you think this is going to take us? Yeah, I mean, it's the, that's the 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 best you know <laughs> guess we have have yeah. really is, is that because it's it's very clearly that vibe. Uh, you know the the works of you know Kurosawa have been influential on Star Wars since the inception of it with George Lucas, and so I think that Favreau and Filoni they they definitely tapped into that and they wanted to push that even further and tell a different kind of story in Star Wars, even if it does feel familiar simply because of how much influence, you know, Lone Wolf, has Cub has, well, Lone Wolf and Cub has had. Um, I, I think that there's probably still surprises in store, and I, I doubt it'll, you know, follow that kind of story in the, in a, the exact same way. But that that influence yeah. there is clearly, clearly something that will shape the rest of the series. Yeah, we'll get at least an episode of that vibe. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, I, I feel like the they... The, Disney was in the right for not screening this episode for critics who were doing interviews because the interviews would all be about this Yoda creature and the Mandalorian, you know, hideout. Uh, but I don't understand why they're not giving critics a screener the day of and being like, there's an embargo for you know midnight tonight or something. Like because I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if we'll get screeners for future episodes. I think. Um, and, and they did release screeners for this for, for the press uh, this morning. So, yeah. Uh, but that was also like, like, you know, nine hours after it was available for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing we got to talk about here is, you know, IG-11 was a big part of the marketing campaign. Like, you can actually buy T-shirts that just have IG-11 on it. And in this final moment of this episode, this chapter one uh, the Mandalorian shoots IG-11 uh, because IG-11 was going to kill the baby or the 50-year-old uh, youngling. Uh, so does that mean that this is the end of Taika's character in the show? I do wonder if he can be brought back. You know, like maybe that they, they keep, uh, you know, IG-11's, you know, memory or something in a, a data bank and he can be uploaded to any droid body and come back. I think that would be kind of cool, actually, if we keep getting... Um, different versions of, of IG-11 or even just different IG droids that happen to have Taika's voice. Um, 
I, I think that could be something that's interesting if if Mandalorian keeps encountering different versions of that. But yeah, it would be kind of weird if they use him and have all these action figures and stuff like that, and they just kill him off in the first episode um, completely. Gentlemen, might I remind you about Darth Maul? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's like a prime, like a but that was two hours of, of of content. This is forty minutes. By by the way, we should also talk about that. I am shocked that this episode was like forty minutes long. Usually, like nowadays, I feel like you know your Game of Thrones is like fifty five minutes to an hour. Like, do we think all the episodes are going to be this short? I I don't know. I think Disney Plus is going to let them tell the stories in yeah, the yeah. the length of time that they have. And I feel like that's something they talked about at the press conference we were at is that like they were able to fit the the length to the story without having to cut for commercial breaks and yeah. and stress out about things. And I think we're going to see that more and more generally as streaming is the way we're going to see these shows at first, that they're going to do the story. They're going to cut it right, even though the scripts might be the same amount of pages, the the minutes, the runtime is going to fluctuate. I know we're going long. Brian, do you have a few more minutes to talk with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about the framing because this this episode begins with a new Star Wars brand opening. This looks kind of like how Marvel opens with the Marvel Studios like intro. This seems like a new thing. Probably won't see it on episode nine, I'm assuming. But we might see it on future Star Wars movies and shows. And this shows us helmets. Shows us Vader. Shows us BB-8. Uh, 3 3PO, Kylo, R2, an X-Wing helmet, uh Stormtrooper new old and new and then the Mandalorian fat helmet. Uh what do you what do you guys think about this? Like I I love that Star Wars is finally getting kind of like a brand logo kind of like uh the Marvel franchise has, but I'm not sure if helmets and like the colors of lightsabers reflecting off them is the way to go. I mean, it's something that they needed to come up with some branding and uh, who knows how long this lasts. I wasn't necessarily put off by it, but I was more excited to watch The Mandalorian than I was to critique the opening logo. <laughs> yeah. Brad, any thoughts on the opening? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fine. I, I don't really know what else you would do yeah. to to make it that much cooler. Um, Show moments like from that. throughout the franchise history, kind of like Marvel does in a way. Yeah, they probably didn't want to directly copy that either, yeah. you know. Um, but, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like the Lucasfilm logo itself is enough, you know. And, like, whenever anyone sees the Lucasfilm logo show up before something, they're like, oh, we're about to get something Star Wars or something that I don't care about. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is the end credits because the end credits have this, like, amazing bit of concept art from the episode. I hope this. Uh, I hope they have new concept art for each end credit scene because it was so beautiful yeah no i really loved that and it really highlighted um the the Gorenson score which it i mean like i was going to sit there and just sort of enjoy the score no matter what but having that really cool concept art was rad and and speaking of the score really quickly like i really loved how it it felt yeah there were those moments of rocky but it felt like Gorenson was like was told Give me, give me what would it, it what it would sound like if Ennio Morricone had been tasked with filling a galaxy far, far away, but with more electronic instruments than just his normal uh, orchestra. 
for sure. I, I love yeah. that score, and I, I've seen a. That's the other bit of criticism I see online. Some people are turned off, t- turned off by the score a little bit because I feel like it's so far away from John Williams and the traditional Star Wars score. Uh, w- what do you think, Brad? No, I love the score, and I actually think that it lines right in with the the spirit of the series, at least from this first episode, is that it's something that feels like Star Wars, but also is starting to branch out into its own thing. And there are themes here that are remnant of Star Wars and the orchestral arrangements that John Williams uh, and Michael Giacchino have have composed. But I like that he's introduced, you know, some tribal elements with regards to uh, Mandalorian scenes. And also that little extra kind of tech electronic touch that makes it feel otherworldly. And it gives us a sense that, you know, we're not in the same, you know, sect of the Star Wars universe that we're, that we're used to playing in. Yeah. And because, if, oh, what were you going to say? I was going to say, if people dig this, um, Kevin Kiner, who did the score for the scores for Clone Wars and Rebels, um, did a lot of work in, that, that hinted at things like this. And I think Goranson is has sort of taken that ball and run with it. But that was definitely something that, George had insisted on and um, Filoni talked about how when George was working on those he said we need to bring this otherworldly these other cultures and that those sorts of musical um, influences into Star Wars Filoni uh, commented I think it was at that press conference that this is finally what he understood really what George meant when they started putting in Goranson's score to, to Mandalorian. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and uh, lastly, I, I think if we're going to get all nerdy on this, we should acknowledge that there is no opening crawl for I, I know that they've abandoned those for the Star Wars story movies, but we're not getting that here. They have been on the comic books and the video games. Uh, so does that mean going forward we're just going to abandon the opening crawl? I think it's going to be up to the filmmakers and the storytellers, right? I know with um, Gareth Edwards, he talked a lot about how they debated back and forth about what would be best for the movie for Rogue One. And I think it would really come down to if the filmmaker feels that it's yeah. right. I feel like it would have been perfect for this, like a show that like you're watching week to week. And in, in future episodes, you could easily be reminded of like, you know, where the story left off. Uh, it, it feels like perfect for a show. I, I mean, I understand for the movies. I I understand, you know, giving the filmmakers the the reign to, you know, choose if it's right for that story. But I don't know. I'm a little. I miss the opening crawl. I feel like the opening I crawl think, is part of Star Wars for me. I think that it's in this case, it's probably just too redundant. You know, because you're already watching week to week, and people are keeping up on what's happening, and you, there's not probably not going to be much time passage between episodes. So there aren't exactly a lot of gaps to fill in. And I think to use a scroll as like a recap, like uh, last week on The Mandalorian, just doesn't seem necessary. And plus, on top of that, the opening crawl itself takes like, what, like two to three minutes or something to do? Uh, You know, so I just... Well, it's only 40 minutes, Brad, so they could have added some time on here. (laughs) But yeah, I just, I think that with a week-to-week show, I I don't think that it's necessary to do it. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I want to thank both of you for joining us. Uh, Brian, if people want to find more of your work, uh, they can they can definitely read the Mandalorian piece that we have on the site today. I'll link that in the show notes. But what, where else can people find you? Um, right now, I, I do a weekly roundup of uh, Star Wars news for the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, and then I'm doing uh, – I'm reviewing all the episodes for, for you all on, on Slash Film. 
And uh, you can find me at the Full of Sith podcast. Or you can find me on Twitter at Swankmotron, uh, which uh, I will I will talk to you about Star Wars there. <laughs> Pretty much guaranteed. Brad, where can people find your work? Always on SlashFilm.com. You can also find me uh, on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And also listen to my podcast called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. And I'm curious what you guys think. I know we're doing a weekly Watchmen podcast. Would you like to hear a weekly Mandalorian podcast? You know, write me an email at peter at slashfilm.com or tweet me at slashfilm on Twitter and let me know what you think. Does this show deserve it? Uh, I, I know there's not like... Uh, it's not as confusing as Watchmen and not as, as uh, depth. There's not a depth of uh, what the, the, the thing is trying to say as Watchmen, but maybe we can make a show out of it. Uh, anyways, you can find more of my work uh, on SlashFilm.com, at SlashFilm on Twitter. Uh, this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.